chapter 1 is where we're going to be at. I'm going to give you just a few minutes uh, to get there. Last week we started talking about what are our doctrinal distinctions as a church, uh, what are the pillars of our theology, and the theology just means a study of who God is, right? Uh, who are we as a church? What marks us different? What dis- what is our distinctions and what marks us uh, from being different than any other religion around us? And it's, it's, it's very crucial for us to have a clear understanding of who we are, not only just as individuals, as believers in Christ, but who we are as a church. And, and I would say that these are just first things, right? Uh, we started out on on what our authority is, because I think that if you can't start there, then really nothing else is going to make sense to um, whether you're a believer or a non-believer. But our authority, our uh, what we stand on, our standard of truth is the word of God, that it is infallible and it is what we stand on. It is the word of God. There are no other words of God. Uh, it is what we stand on. It is our standard of truth, and that's where we started, um, because if we can't start there, then nothing else will make sense. Now, these are our essentials as believers. I want to shy away from using the word fundamental, because a lot of bad rap with that word, you know, being a fundamentalist and all that kind of stuff. Um, so these are essentials. What we, I've always called it, these are first things. Uh, you keep first things first, and then in secondary issues, we can agree to have some type of unity on, um, and then for all of the things that we none of us agree on, then you just pray for God's help. But we're not going to get there. I want us to focus on what are our first things, not secondary things, not, you know, what is the sign of the end time? What is sign gifts? What are these things? Those are secondary things that I think still collectively, whether you fall in line on one issue of secondary uh, thing, we could still be brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? But, but what are, what's going to make us a brother and sister in Christ Jesus are, are these essential things, are what we believe about the Bible, are what we believe about God. And I want us to start, well, continue off with what we believe about God. No big task. I'll, I'll do this in 30 minutes. My mind is already blown when we talk about the doctrine of God, the theology of of God. Our view of God will determine and shape us as believers in how we view God. And then, and so that's vertically and then horizontally how we'll view others. And if we don't have a right understanding of who God is, then really nothing else is going to make sense. Um, I want to give you some statistics because I'm not that guy, but I am today, because I want you to understand why this is important and how our culture has, uh, how I could say, kind of moved away from a belief of who God is. In fact, Pew Research um, has some incredible insight in how our culture is moving away from who God is. Uh, In 70 years, a belief in God, or at least some higher power, uh, has changed so much uh, and has declined 10%. Over the past 70 years, a belief in God or higher power has declined in 10%. According to Pew Research, 60% of people 
say that God plays an important role in their life. 60% of people in the world that they have researched and surveyed believe that God plays an important part in their life. In fact, 33% say that he doesn't play any role at all, and then there are 7% who just don't care. In fact, it continues on. It says, those with higher income are less likely to believe in God. I think Jesus, gee, I think he talks about that. Those with higher education are also less likely to believe in God as necessary. Young adults are less inclined to believe in God, and that category is 55 and younger. I'm so glad they kind of raised that bar just a little bit. Now, our standard is the Bible, right? This is our absolute. This is our truth. This is what we stand on. And so this is critical because the the Bible is going to inform you and direct you with your theology or with your understanding of who God is. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 12 says, beware lest you forget who God is. So there's a warning for the children of Israel who had just seen miraculous things done and the word of the Lord came to Moses and he says, I need you to be aware of all the things that I've done and be aware of who I am unless you forget me. In in fact, there's many beliefs of who God is because that's the question, who is God? Who is God? That's gonna be our question that we try to unpack. Now, is God a force? Many people would say that God is just a force. In fact, the original founder of the American Atheist Association, her name is Madeline O'Hare, says God is nobody. In fact, if you ask her where everything came from, she will tell you the equation on which the universe is built is nobody times nothing equals everything. And sadly, many people follow after her ridiculousness. Yet that does not satisfy the longing of man's heart. And there are various views of God. You have the deist. The deist says... You could write these terms down if you've never heard them before and look up them later. Adia says that God does not care about the human affairs. In fact, he has just kind of created everything and then just went about his business and let everything just kind of determine whatever it wants to happen. He is unaware. He does not care about anything that's happening in the affairs of humanity. Then you have the fatalist, and the fatalist says God is some practical joker up in the stairs, and he played the biggest joke of all on humankind. And he gives you no purpose, and he gives you no meaning, and he's just up there just laughing at all of you for believing in something. Then there is the pantheist who comes along and says, No, God is the essence of everything. God is in everything. God is the grass. God is the trees. Then you have the pluralist who believes that there are many, many gods to choose from. You can choose from whichever God fits your fancy, whoever that is. But who is God? That's the question. 
who is God, and not only who is God, but what is God like? To begin with, there are four truths before I get into Nahum, four truths about who God is and what is he really like? Because scripture, when you begin to dive into scripture and look through scripture, you see, you begin to see who God is and what he's like and what his character is. First thing I would say about God is God is one. He is one God in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one so we believe in not a plurality of gods, but we believe that there is only one and true and holy God. Secondly, we believe, and hold on, that he is one God, but he is in three persons. He is one God, but he is manifested through three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And they are succinctly one person. Thirdly, we find that God, from Jesus' own mouth, is a spirit. That God is a spirit. And it's interesting, and I would want you to put an asterisk on that and, and use that uh, for the culture that you and I find ourselves in. That God is a spirit. Fourthly, God is the creator in Genesis 1.1. We see this, that in the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. He is not a created being. No one conjured up him. No one birthed him. He's not a figment of one's imagination, but God is the creator of all things. One God, three in persons. His essence is spirit, and he is the source of all things. That is the basic fundamental identity of God. I feel like I should deserve a reward, award right now for describing it in such timely fashion. You're welcome. Now, Nahum chapter one is going to now pick apart some characteristics of God. We could spend an eternity on identifying and talking through, weeping through, rejoicing through, questioning through, rummaging through, the character of God. But I want us to focus on three distinct characteristics of who God is, and it's going to be found in our passage today in Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. If you're there, say amen. If you're not, I've given you plenty of time. There's something wrong. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? 
Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Can we just pray over the reading of God's word and ask God to help me? God, thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you that it is the divine revelation of who you are. And Lord, I am asking for help as I begin to unpack the true identity of who you are for us, God. Because I just sincerely believe that if we could see you for who you really are, man, we find our meaning, we find our purpose. We find out that life is more than just living for this material things. We find that life is more. We find that even in the chaos of things, that if we could see you for who you really are, we understand there's a meaning and purpose through all these things. God, I pray that you would be mighty to save. I pray that you would be mighty to heal. And I pray for those who don't believe in you, that they would come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and would find true life. And that's only through you. In Jesus' name, amen. First chapter of Nahum. We have a specific prophecy that's given for the area of Nineveh. You get this introduction of this wrathful, vengeful God that no one wants to talk about, right? When we talk about God, like, dang, preacher, you started out with this really wrathful type of word for these people. Well, to understand the context of this, God is sick of these people who are driving and forcing his people out of their area. And he gives this stark prophecy and this warning to the people of Nineveh that I will have none of this anymore. It began to be drove out by the Assyrians and now Nineveh is taking place in this persecution of God's people. And here we get this first character of God and who he's really like. And he's like, I will have none of this. You will no longer torture my people. I will be vengeful for my people and I will take wrath and pour it out over you. It's not a character of God that we want to talk about. There are three distinct characteristics of God that I think are are profound for us in the culture in which we live in that needs to be magnified in our own lives so that we could see God for who he is, that God is just, God is powerful, and God is merciful. I want you to, to just kind of, let's put a magnifying glass on these three distinct characteristics of who God is, that God is just, God is powerful, God is also merciful. God is just, God is powerful, and God is merciful. When we talk about the justice of God, this is, uh, we, we think of these things through the lenses of a legal term, in this case, in government. 
let me lay a little groundwork by just saying a couple things. You may, you, you've got to understand a few things that God has the absolute right to rule and authority over his creatures because he is God. He has the absolute rule and right to rule over his people however he wants to because he is God. He makes laws, he determines the standard, and he judges on the terms of the results. Therefore, he has the total and the perfect right to set the principles by which his creation must function. That God has the right to do what he wants to do. He has created a law for us to abide by and for anyone who would buck against the system of God, you will experience the justice of God. You immediately fall under the judgment, which is the justice of God. Let me notice how this presents itself in verse 2. If you could take a look at verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. And notice this is towards the enemies of not just God, but the enemies of the people of God. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries because whoever is an adversary of the people of God is an adversary of who God is. I should have had an amen right there, but y'all sleeping. Let me say that one more time for the folks in the back. For the adversaries, for those who are adversaries for the people of God, you are an adversary to God. The enemies of the people of God are an enemy to God. The Lord's slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now, these statements are tremendously powerful statements. They show a side of God who is vengeful and he's furious and he's wrathful. Like, first of all, notice what he says, that he is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. God resents these insults to the people of God as they are an insult to the name of God. And he's a jealous God. Why is God a jealous God? You ever heard of that? Like you read through the Old Testament and you see this all the time. Like, like why are you jealous? You sound like some petty little girl. Jealous? Why are you jealous? Because he's God. He does not share his throne with anyone. He's a jealous God for when any time that any person tries to make something a God, he will have none of it. Anything that is a threat to the glory and the magnificence of God it, it just goes wrong. God is a jealous God. He does not share his glory, nor does he share his power, nor does he share his throne with anyone. And he won't have any of that because he is a jealous God. He demands like creatures to glorify, like he demands all of creation to glorify him. And some would likely say that this just kind of sounds a little strange that God is a self-centered God? That's the question that I ask. Like, well, this sounds like God is self-centered. Well, yes, he is. He is about himself. He is about the glory of himself. 
That is the purpose of God. He's about himself. He does not share his glory with your friend. He doesn't share his glory with your spouse. Or he doesn't share his glory, newsflash, with you. He's God. There's no one else like him. And he's a jealous God. And he's jealous for his own praise. And he demands it from his creation. I know when we talk about a theology of God, this doesn't sound like the God that we want to serve, right? Wow, preacher, like you just sound so, I don't know, angry. Well, this is who God is, a character of God. You cannot have the love of God without the justice of God. You have created God into your own image and he will have none of that. You see this when God gives the commandments in Exodus 34. Listen to this. For you shall not worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He even takes the name Jealous to identify himself intrinsically with jealousy. God does not tolerate rebellion against giving him glory. Listen in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. For the Lord thy God, listen to this, is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. This is not a popular characteristic of our God, but to have the love of God without the justice of God, you have a pansy as a God. To strip him of his authority, to strip him of his justice, to strip him of who he is, that he sets all of the boundaries and all of the laws. You don't have God. You have an American idol. And he will not share his throne with your American idol because he is a jealous God. Justice is the same as righteousness. God is that standard of justice, and it's keeping the commandments of God. And justice is not really optional. Everyone will be judged by God's righteous standards. And he's serious about justice. It is not an equitable justice, whereas we have coined this social justice which is to be equitable and only for a certain type of group of people based off of their identity. This is an equal justice for everyone. You violate the way of God. You violate the standards of God. You will be judged unless, unless you are found in Christ then the judgment of God is placed on the Son of God. And the Son of God, Jesus, absorbs the wrath and the judgment that should have been placed on those who believe. So you get judgment despite where you are. Either eternity in hell or the judgment was placed on Christ Jesus. It's the standard of who God is. It is his justice. And we think, well, this seems so unfair that God would judge a sinner, that God would have this standard, that he would judge the sinner and condemn them to hell. 
Yes. But let's talk about fairness if we can just a minute. If we're, if we're measuring fairness based off of that, it wasn't then fair that Jesus lived a perfect life and then absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. That's not fair. So we can't use this argument, well, well that's not fair that God just seems like he's some judge from just justice person. Well, baby, let's talk about justice then, and let's talk about fairness. Because what ain't fair, as we say in the South, what ain't fair is that Jesus had to go through what he had to go through. This is primarily important for us because of our view of justice and then our view of God is just being this God of love, God of love, God of justice. The two are inseparable. The reason why these are inseparable is because, you know, many of us are like, well, God loves me, you know, and he sees me and, and, and it's okay if I sin because God loves me. And we have taken this probably from my childhood in the 90s where we would begin to hear this dumb phrase, well, me and God are homies and we're bros. And we've stripped him down of his authority and he's just a God of convenience for us. And we don't want God to be a God of justice. I know that we love God of love, but not the just God who brings wrath. I understand that these two things are inseparable because I am both a husband and a father. If someone comes to my wife, tries to start something, I will bloody them up with either my old man's strength or my Glock. You try to mess with my daughter, I will bloody you up also, either with my old man's strength or my Glock. And I will begin to start a prison ministry and win over all of the prisoners for Jesus Christ for their sake. Why? Because I am a father who loves and I am a father who is just. And you mess with one of my kids or my wife and you'll see the display of Matthew's justice. God here is talking to these Assyrian morons and the Ninevites who are persecuting the people of God and who have probably blasphemed the name of God and just saying, oh, you know what? He's not just. He's not a judge. He's not going to be wrathful against us. We can continue on in our lifestyle and we will drive these Israelites out into captivity. God will not do anything about it. And God says, that is not who I am. I am a vengeful God, I'm a wrathful God, and I will bring justice for my people. Why? Because God is a God of justice. And he's not just a God of justice that we see displayed here in this passage. He's a God of power. It is a theological word that we use, omnipotent. 
He's a God of all power, and all of the power is displayed here when God says that I will move through the whirlwinds, I will move through the storms, and even the clouds will be the dust of my feet. This is a display and a character mark of God and who he is, that he is all-powerful. I wished I could just kind of operate in some of this power that God has, especially on the interstate or on the highway especially when things aren't going my way. I want, to, I want that power of God, right? But I don't have that power. God has that power. We see the power of display. In fact, I would, see, I would, I would venture to say that if you want to know what Jesus or God is like and see who he is and, and what he moves his heart, you just look at the person of Jesus because Jesus is God. Newsflash, that's next week. And we see how even Jesus operates in this type of omnipotence, in this type of power, where Jesus would curse a fig tree and tell it to stop doing things, and the fig tree just like withers. Some of you have that gift. You have a black thumb, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus can just tell a storm, hey, you know what? You're not allowed to be a storm anymore. Stop, and the winds and the waves cease. Jesus has an authority to tell his best friend Lazarus, who's been dead for four days, not four hours, not four minutes, but the kind of days that begin to rank the person's scent. In fact, one of the scriptures in the King James Version of John says, he stinketh, not your husband, Lazarus, And Jesus has that type of authority where he can tell this dead guy who's been dead for four days to, you know what, Lazarus, that's enough. Time time to come back to life. That's a type of power and omnipotence that God operates in. Sometimes when we see the power, we can mingle that word with majesty. Like you, you guys, we know majesty very well here in Utah. You can get a sense of majesty. And majesty, how I would describe majesty is like, you know, it's beautiful. It's like awesome. But there's like this sense inside of me that just one wrong move and I can die. That's majesty. That's power. And like some of these bike trails around here, especially around Zion, you, you get a majestic feel when there's sudden drop of two million feet just one foot away from you. You know, one wrong move, one brush of the southern Utah wind can throw my skinny self off of this cliff and boom, I'm dead. That's majesty. That's terrifying, but that's Majesty, it's beautiful, it's, it's captivating. You see how wonderful and how powerful this, this scenery is, but you also get a sense that something behind this, something about this for you can go wrong. It has a sense of power over you. You look at the majestic mountains around us and you hike up the mountains and you, you sense how majestic and how beautiful they are. But you also kind of get the sense that, you know, that one wrong move 
When we talk about the power of God, we, we, we mingle the power of God with the majesty of God, that how, how wonderful and, and how beautiful and how gracious and, and, and just beautiful God is. There's a sense within us that, man, one wrong thing here, right? That doesn't mean we walk around like cowering, like waiting for God to like strike us down with, with like he's some old ornery grandpa up in the heavens. That's not who God is because we're going to find out this third and more importantly character of God. That God is a God of mercy. You know, I, you, you get all of this wrath, you get all of this vengeance and this jealousy, and you get all of this like just seemingly like doom and gloom. And if we were to just put a period there and stop right there, man, like none of you would ever come back to this church. In fact, you may walk out on me and that's okay. If you, if you continue reading, you get a sense that he's not just a God of justice. He's not just a God who is all-powerful over all things, where he, where he speaks things and things come to life, and he speaks creation and creation happens. You, you get this wrath, but you also get that God is a God of infinite mercy. I love verse 7 because he draws this back to his people, that the Lord is good, and that's refreshing, you know, after you hear all of this, that God is just and God is jealous and God is vengeful and wrathful and he will judge. If we stop there, then he would seem like that old Papa who is just so ornery. But the Lord is good. Who is God? God is good. God is good. Uh, and he continues a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. To say the Lord is good is for some also that hard pill to swallow. We think that God must be a real troublemaker, a cruel individual. You look at all the things that are happening in our world. You see how, you know, rumors of wars. You see just the ignorance of governments. You see how all these crazy things are happening and unfolding in front of our eyes. You, you understand this on a more personal level. You're waiting for the doctor's report. You're waiting for this to happen and your, your marriage is all busted up and, and you look around the world and you look at your own individual lives and you ask the question, how, how is God good? How is God merciful? The Bible would want to remind us of not only of just his justice, but also of his power and his merciful. The psalmist would say the goodness of God exists continually. The psalmist would go on to say, the Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. In Lamentations, as we have gone through several weeks ago, Jeremiah said, 
The Lord is good to them that wait for him and seek him. The goodness of God and the mercy of God is also displayed through the the person of God and Jesus. When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, I take care of my people. And then he says that he's a stronghold in trouble. He's a refuge in Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, the Lord is our security in the midst of material, physical, and mental affliction. And I think if we could pick one passage to display how God would just repeat this attribute of himself, we could find it in Exodus 34. God is revealing himself to Moses, causing his glory to pass by Moses, whom God has put on the cleft of a rock. And after God says, the Lord, the Lord your God, he displays his name as two words, merciful and gracious. The first words out of God's own mouth after proclaiming his name, I am merciful and gracious. Directly how Jesus would also describe his own heart, and maybe in a different way, but Jesus would say that I am gentle and lowly, or I am merciful and gracious. God does not reveal to us in his name that I am a God who is tolerant of all sins, nor does God reveal himself in the first time since he walked with Adam, that I am God, I am the Lord, I am um, judgeful and just God, although that is who he is. No, he's, he wants everyone to know who he is and who God is, is he is merciful and gracious. That God is merciful and gracious. So then how about, we we go back to the question, how then is God merciful and how is God gracious? Because we we see through all these crazy things in the world. You look at disease, you look at death, you look at poverty, you look at mental disease and disorder, you look at the vengeance and all of the horror in the world. If God is good, how do we relate to this? And so we have to go back to the word of God. And we also have to go back to the perspective that we have. We've gone through some challenging things. Myself personally, I've gone through some challenging things. And the question that I had to remind myself, and maybe this can help you, is in 1,000 years from now, how will this affect me? And 5,000 years from now, how will this affect me? I'm going through trauma. I'm going through anxiety. You're going through depression. You're going through brokenness. You're going through all of the issues that life has to offer. And you ask yourself in 5,000 years, will this even matter? What is the perspective behind it? We know that in Romans 8, that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. So we trust that even the trauma, even the chaos, even the bad things in life, we trust that God is good. 
We trust that he will work it out some way. We may not see it in our lifetime, and it may be generations upon generations past, and no one will ever see it. But we trust in the God who reveals himself as I am a God of mercy and grace. That's how we can look at all the craziness and chaos of the world and make sense of it. That in the end, like eternity with Christ is, that's all, like that's, that's it. It's an internal perspective that the things that I find myself going through then on this life are minuscule compared to how long eternity is with Jesus Christ. God is just, God is powerful, and God is merciful. One of, I think, uh, and I'm going to close here, one of, I th- one of the things that I think is Satan's greatest victory um, in your life is not necessarily the sin that you keep going back to. One of the greatest victories that Satan has in our life is to distort our view of God. God's not just. God is not powerful. Oh, God is not definitely a merciful God for you. And we buy into the tactics of the enemy. And then we begin to believe something unbiblical about who God is. But if we can have a right view of who God is, then that would give us the power and the courage to conquer the sins that we have. God is just, God is powerful, and God is merciful. Let's pray. Father. 